Forum, originating from the Westminster Presbyterian Church on the Nicolette Mall in downtown Minneapolis. My name is Gordon Stewart, moderator of the Town Hall Forum and senior pastor here at Westminster Church. I would like to thank the co-sponsor for today's Town Hall Forum speaker, Honeywell Incorporated. Since 1980, the Town Hall Forum has brought to the airwaves of Minnesota Public Radio and the live audience here in the sanctuary of Westminster, voices of conscience who address key issues from an ethical perspective. This year, the Town Hall Forum Advisory Committee has chosen to focus within that larger theme on building a civil society. Dr. Jean Kilborn was recently featured in the New York Times Magazine as one of the three most popular speakers on college campuses today. She has twice received the Lecturer of the Year Award from the National Association for Campus Activities, an internationally recognized authority on the media, addictions, and gender issues. She has lectured extensively throughout North America and abroad. The award-winning films Still Killing Us Softly, Calling the Shots, and A Pack of Lies are based on her lectures. She is a frequent guest on radio and television programs, including the Today Show, 2020, Primetime Live, and the Oprah Winfrey Show. She has also been interviewed by many magazines and newspapers, including Time, Newsweek, and the Wall Street Journal. Dr. Kilborn was recently appointed by the U.S. Secretary of Health and Human Services to the National Advisory Council on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. She has served as an advisor to the Surgeon General and has testified before the U.S. Congress. She is a visiting scholar at Wellesley College alma mater. Writing for the Boston Globe, Joseph Kahn writes the following in a feature article on Dr. Kilborn. The message I'm sending is that addictions are political and they are profitable, declared Kilborn, an outspoken ex-smoker who has roughly the same affection for Joe Camel that the Orkin man has for the cockroach. On the deepest level, she said, what I'm talking about is freedom, our right as citizens to be free, healthy, and informed. Please welcome Dr. Jean Kilborn speaking on the topic today, How Free Is Our Press? The Truth About Censorship. Thank you, Gordon. Thank you very much to all of you for being here. I've looked forward to this. It's a pleasure to be here with you in this beautiful church in your wonderful city, a city I've visited often and always enjoy. Censorship. What an ugly word. What do you think of when you hear that word? I know I tend to think of jackbooted thugs marching into small newspaper offices and destroying presses or sometimes of small-minded folk pulling the catcher in the rye off of library bookshelves or burning books. There's a lot of confusion about what the word means. To most people, it means the government telling us what we can and cannot say. And certainly this does happen sometimes, and we need to be on guard against it. The most recent example was the extraordinary censorship of the press during the Persian Gulf War. But there's a more subtle, and I would argue, a more damaging kind of censorship going on in our lives all the time. And that is the censorship of the media on behalf of advertisers. What do I mean by this? Let's consider a few examples. CBS decides not to run a scheduled interview on 60 Minutes for fear of being sued by the tobacco industry. A longtime columnist with the Birmingham, Alabama News is fired after he was publicly quoted about the influence of automobile dealers on his paper. Pesticide advertising in farm journals makes it difficult for farmers to get reliable information about pest control. They don't want to offend the advertisers. When Time magazine did a two-week excursion into the history of World War II, 
all their Japanese advertisers pulled out. Acura, Epson, Subaru, Mazda, Isuzu. According to the Boston Globe, it is clearly the case that none of the above wanted to run near a photograph of the Arizona going down. How can we get accurate information from a media that depend increasingly on the goodwill of advertisers? Today, I'm going to talk about this kind of censorship. We'll be looking at some examples, some case studies. I'll consider other ways in which we fail to get important information and how this affects our lives. And finally, I'll discuss some things we can do to bring about change. A lot of my information comes from a small but important booklet called Dictating Content, How Advertising Pressure Can Corrupt a Free Press. This is written by Ronald Collins. It's available from the Center for the Study of Commercialism in Washington, D.C. Now, this is listed as are other books that I'm going to refer to on a resource list that you can obtain by calling the church. If you call the church, the Westminster Presbyterian Church, they will give you my address. If you write to me, I'll be happy to send you this resource list that gives us all kinds of books and articles and ideas for action. But one book to be sure, little booklet to be sure to get is this one called Dictating Content, How Advertising Pressure Can Corrupt a Free Press by Ronald Collins. Let's begin with a look at the economic backdrop of this kind of censorship. The architects of the First Amendment certainly understood that democracy can't work if the people aren't fully informed. They saw the danger as the government, the state, and they wrote the amendment to protect the people's speech from government intrusion. Congress shall make no law. They could not have foreseen the rise in mass technology that would result in a mass media controlled by transnational corporations beyond the reach of the First Amendment. People cannot be fully informed without a free and fearless press, and too often we have neither. But the press is not afraid of government so much as it's afraid of advertisers. Now this has been going on a long time. James Gordon Bennett, founder of the New York Herald, nearly went out of business in 1835 after a fire consumed one of his printing plants. A quack named Dr. Bandreth came to the rescue by offering the Herald a very lucrative advertising contract. The paper, which was then billed as more independent than ever, was saved, but at a cost. Suddenly, readers were subjected to a steady stream of front-page news stories about the miraculous qualities of Dr. Bandreth's phony cure-all pills. Responding to complaints from rival pill pushers, the publisher coolly explained, business is business, money is money. Today's corruption is somewhat more subtle, but the goal of the media is to increase corporate profit, not to serve the public. The primary purpose of the mass media is to sell products. Everything else is secondary. As an ABC executive said not long ago, the network is paying affiliates to carry network commercials, not programs. What we are is a distribution system for Procter & Gamble. Well, the corporate sector has growing influence over public policy in many ways, through advertising, money to politicians, lobbying. The most disturbing aspect today is that the very same corporate sector now owns vast, a vast majority of the nation's media. So as a result, the very transnational corporations that readers and viewers need to know more about are buying up the media companies that are supposed to be reporting on them. And you can read about this in a wonderful book called The Media Monopoly by Ben Bagdikian, which is listed on my handout. What he said, and he's been saying it for years, is increasingly true. Just this year, we've seen, thanks to increasing deregulation, Disney merged with ABC. Westinghouse with CBS, Gannett with Multimedia. All of our information and entertainment is in the hands of a very small group of people. Without exception, rich white men with a similar point of view. About 20 corporations today own almost all of the media. Think about what this means in terms of some of the ownership. NBC is owned by General Electric, CBS now soon by Westinghouse. General Electric and Westinghouse are the Coke and Pepsi of nuclear power, basically, and of the defense contractors. Can, so two of our major networks are owned by 
two of our leading defense contractors. Can we be expecting hard-hitting exposés of Pentagon overspending soon? How about uh, big programs on the hazards of nuclear waste? Not very likely. This cross-ownership poses tremendous threats to editorial independence. NBC already has reportedly removed from a news report information about defective jet engine parts that were manufactured by its parent company, GE. And it happens in a couple of ways. That's an example of direct economic censorship. But there's also a lot of corruption of editorial integrity that goes on as the press becomes more and more anxious to please advertisers. For example, Time's merger with Warner Communications led to a cover story in Time magazine promoting Warner book author Scott Turow, whose book, Presumed Innocent, was also being made into a Warner movie. You can see how this works to serve all of them, but not to serve us. Direct economic censorship occurs when advertisers overtly exercise their financial clout. Self-censorship, which is in some ways more insidious, occurs when an editor, a reporter, a producer, a writer kills a story or doesn't even consider it because of the subtle yet pervasive influence of advertisers. Sometimes it's hard to know the difference. For example, when Time magazine carried a special advertising section on health in October of 1985, all the references to the hazards of smoking cigarettes were removed from the material that had been presented to them by the American Academy of Family Physicians. So the American Academy of Family Physicians had given them this report, but they removed all references to cigarettes. There were seven full-page tobacco ads in that issue of Time. If the tobacco companies demanded such treatment, this is an example of direct censorship. If Time's editors simply anticipated problems, this is an example of self-censorship. In either case, it both happens all the time, and it's difficult to prove. I'm going to give some general examples and then focus on the influence of the tobacco industry on the media, since it's becoming increasingly problematic. Local newspapers and television stations are often censored by their major advertisers, which are car dealers, realtors, and retail stores. According to Herb Denenberg, a consumer reporter in Philadelphia, everyone loves it if you're chopping up the city of Philadelphia, but if you're chopping up car dealers or department stores, many stations don't want to touch it. Just for one example of that, last year, a group of 47 new car dealers in San Jose boycotted the San Jose Mercury News. Why? What was their terrible offense? They'd written an article advising consumers on how to buy a new car. They wrote an article advising consumers on how to buy a new car, and 47 of the new car dealers in the area boycotted them. It cost them millions of dollars. However, for the first time in its history, the Federal Trade Commission challenged the boycotters. And the chairman, Robert Potofsky, said, advertising is a key source of price and other information, and when competitors band together to restrict it, consumers lose. These are not isolated examples. A study published in the Journal of Advertising in 1992 said advertisers pressured about 90% of the nation's newspapers to change or kill stories and were successful with about one-third of them. Now, the good news, I suppose, is that two-thirds resisted this pressure, and that is good news, but for how long? More than half of the respondents, and these are people within the industry, said that there was pressure from within their newspapers to write stories to please advertisers. Indeed, Richard Kipling, the hiring editor of the Los Angeles Times, said recently, I get calls from reporters across the country who are concerned, fearful actually, about the increasing pressures to do stories pleasing to advertisers. In each case, they've questioned the journalistic value of these stories and have been told simply to find a way to make these stories work. They're panicked that their careers are in jeopardy, that they have only one choice, do the advertiser-friendly stories, or join the burgeoning ranks of the journalistic unemployed. Indeed, the Gannett Company, which owns many of the nation's newspapers, suggested to its local papers that they boost their circulation by featuring more coverage of shopping trends and sales, new products and restaurants, and less coverage of institutions like local government. Thus, reporters find themselves creating stories about new shopping malls instead of probing, say, the unsafe working conditions at the local meatpacking plant or overcrowded classes in the local elementary schools 
and we don't get the information that we so vitally need. This is not a conspiracy, and I don't mean to suggest that it is. At least 60 years ago, the historian Frederick Lewis Allen wrote, Editors and reporters find out what pays is to write the sort of news story which please the man at the top. They put their jobs first and the truth second. The whole process of corrupting the news, where corruption today exists, is less often the deliberate work of men bent on falsehood than a process of drifting before the winds of circumstance, timidity, and self-interest. And what he said 60 years ago is certainly true today. It's also very important that I point out that there are many courageous reporters, editors, media executives who are resisting this advertising pressure. For example, the Seattle Times and the Seattle Post-Intelligence stood firm in their coverage of the retail giant Nordstrom, despite the loss of substantial amounts of Nordstrom ad revenue. I know here in Minneapolis, the Star Tribune, these very days, is doing an expose, a real study of the gambling that's going on, which is very important. We desperately need this kind of investigative reporting, this kind of information. So I don't mean to imply that everyone has been bought out, but there's increasing pressure on the press to yield to this kind of uh, censorship. Advertisers often voice specific desires regarding content, even if it's unrelated to their product. You can understand car dealers don't want bad news about cars, but in a 1990 essay in Ms. Magazine, a very important essay entitled Sex, Lies, and Advertising, which is listed also on my resource list, Gloria Steinem reported that Procter & Gamble once made it abundantly clear that its products were not to be placed in any issue that included any material on gun control, abortion, the occult, cults, or the disparagement of religion. They wouldn't be in a magazine that included any material. Well, most sponsors want to avoid controversial topics. That makes sense. But as a result, we often don't get the coverage of these, con uh, these topics that we need. Just another one quick example of how this works, too. When ABC's 30-something broadcast an episode that showed two gay men in bed together in 1989, they lost a million dollars in advertising revenue. Because of that loss, they refused to rerun the episode, uh, episode during the summer season. They just refused to take that loss again. This scene that so upset the advertisers was less than two minutes long. It certainly wasn't torrid. These men were not even touching each other. They were discussing being gay, and they were discussing the friends that they'd lost to AIDS. But it couldn't be rerun. Producer Richard Kramer said, I'm really sickened by this and feel we're being censored by advertisers who are not equipped to make this judgment. I find it interesting that a show that featured the murder of two gay men would probably not be censored by advertisers. Advertisers have a right, of course, to say what they're going to advertise on and what they're not. But we run into problems when they start to dictate what we can and cannot see. Now, women's magazines are probably the most obvious advertising vehicles of all. They're largely designed to meet the needs of the fashion and cosmetic industries, as, as we all know. And this results not only in a kind of censorship of real information that women need, particularly health information, as we shall see. It also results in a kind of censorship of real women's faces and bodies. We never see a woman's face presented as attractive that has not been carefully made up, airbrushed, computer retouched. Our real faces are censored. An interesting example of this was cited by Gloria Steinem in the article I mentioned, where she talked about a major cover story that was done in Ms. Magazine several years ago when Ms. took ads on Soviet women. And it was an award-winning story, won awards. But at the same time, it cost Ms all their Revlon advertising. Revlon never advertised in Ms. again. Why not? Because the Soviet women on the cover of Ms. were not wearing makeup. This is just an example of the extraordinary, far-reaching kind of influence that, of course, we could not possibly be aware of. There are countless such stories. They involve many industries. But let's take a look now at a kind of censorship that has enormous impact on our health, the influence of the tobacco industry on the media. 
Now, I'm used to doing slideshows, and I, it broke my heart when they told me I couldn't show slides here, but I can see now it would have been difficult. And I thought about, well, it'll take a long time if I pass the slides around, so I, I, can't, I can't use slides. So I'm going to ask you to do a little slideshow in your own mind. I'm going to figuratively hold up some, something for you and let you imagine it. I'm going to figuratively hold up some magazine covers for you to look at. So now we're looking at, let's say, the cover of Life magazine. This is a real recent cover of Life magazine. On the cover is the face of a child, surrounded by the words abduction, television, accidents, violence, drugs. And the headline says, how can we keep our children safe? Well, that seems very important, doesn't it? But let's just open the magazine. On the back cover is a Marlboro ad. Do you think they included cigarettes as part of the drug problem affecting our children? Absolutely not. How can we keep our children safe? Or let's look at Red Book magazine. Here we'll look at the front cover. On the front cover, and this is a real, magazine, a real issue, of course, is Candace Bergen's beautiful face and many stories, including one entitled Health News, Cut Your Cancer Risk by 50%. Well, I would hope that everyone here knows that the single most important thing you can do to cut your cancer risk is not to smoke, by far. They did not mention not smoking in this article, however. They said something about eating broccoli, but nothing about cigarettes. Let's open it up. What's on the back cover? An ad for more cigarettes. This happens again and again and again. They, the magazines can't afford to lose those back covers. They're worth a couple of hundred thousand dollars, and therefore they cannot give us accurate health information. Taking on the tobacco industry can be costly, and they're proving that more and more all the time. In 1982, a reporter mentioned in a preview of the Cool Jazz Festival, brought, brought to you by Cool Cigarettes, that Duke Ellington had died from lung cancer. Mentioned it. According to the reporter, the publisher called me into his office and said, if we have to fly to Louisville, Kentucky, and crawl on our bended knees and beg the cigarette company not to take their ads out of our newspaper, we'll do that. You're fired. Do you remember a few years ago the Northwest Airlines commercial that announced that it was going smoke-free, the first airline to do that? A great commercial where the people on the plane started to clap because someone had, you know, they announced this. A great commercial which cost the ad agency that did it, Saatchi and Saatchi, about $75 million. Why? Because RJR Nabisco, RJ Reynolds Nabisco, took away all of its U.S. business from this ad agency, even though the agency didn't handle RJR tobacco products. They handled their food products, but they lost all their U.S. Agent, uh, business. Think of the chilling effect that this has on an agency's free speech. Well, while many magazines cover up the tobacco story, women's magazines have been particularly silent. A four-year study of six major women's magazines by Lauren Kessler revealed that five of them carried extensive cigarette ads. We're talking 10, 11, 12 ads in a magazine and were virtually silent on one of the leading women's health stories of all time, the rise of lung cancer as the chief cancer killer of women. In the past few years, lung cancer has overtaken breast cancer as the chief cancer killer of women, but you won't learn that from the women's magazines. Dr. Holly Atkinson, a health writer for New Woman magazine, recalled that she was barred from covering smoking-related issues and that her editor struck any reference to cigarettes in articles on topics ranging from wrinkles to cancer. When Atkinson confronted the editor, a shouting match ensued. Holly, who do you think supports this magazine? demanded the editor, referring to the magazine's tobacco accounts. Now, maybe we can shrug our shoulders at this kind of censorship. Maybe we can convince ourselves that we're invulnerable to it, that we're going to get this information somehow anyway. But what about our children? Are you all familiar with the Weekly Reader, the magazine that goes to elementary school kids all around the country? From 1989 to 1994, the Weekly Reader spread tobacco industry views and images of Joe Camel to millions of elementary school children. They published articles that basically supported the tobacco industry's views. Why? Because at the time that the articles appeared, the Weekly Reader was owned by K3 Communications, which is a unit of Kohlberg, Kravis, Roberts, and Company, which is, in turn, the largest shareholder of R.J.R. Nabisco, the creator of Joe Camel. 
So researchers at the University of California at San Francisco did a study of the Weekly Reader, and they compared it with uh, Scholastic News, which is uh, some, another publication for elementary school kids that is not owned by tobacco industries. And they found that in the Weekly Reader, 68% of the articles included tobacco industry views, and only 38% carried a clear message against smoking. With Scholastic News, it was reversed, about, well, even more. Only 30% of articles included industry views, and about 80% carried anti-smoking warnings. These are children we're talking about. But, of course, they are also the chief target of the tobacco industry. The tobacco industry has to get 3,000 children to start smoking every single day just to replace those smokers who die or quit. They're in the business of getting children addicted to nicotine, and what better place to start than Weekly Reader? The publisher of Weekly Reader said that corporate ownership played no role in these articles. They don't tell us what to do or how to do it, she said. If they did, I wouldn't be working here. Maybe she believes this, but could it possibly be true? Well, the Weekly Reader. We move from that to 60 Minutes. Just last month, of course, there's been widespread publicity about the fact that the producers of CBS's 60 Minutes pulled a feature story about the tobacco industry. In September, Mike Wallace interviewed Dr. Jeffrey Wigand, a retired Brown and Williamson Tobacco Company chief scientist who'd been assigned by the company to work on developing a non-toxic and fire-resistant cigarette. He signed a confidentiality agreement when he left the company, promising not to divulge industry and company secrets in the future. But CBS said he came forward to them out of guilt. He's the highest level and most knowledgeable tobacco industry source ever to try to go public. What he could have said to us probably could have been, would have been extremely important. CBS feared a lawsuit. They also feared loss of advertising revenue. And it seems increasingly there were other concerns, too, about promises that they'd made to Wigand. And we can talk about this during the Q&A if you want more information. But certainly this is a chilling thing that has happened. And many uh, reporters spoke out against this as well. There are many insidious forms of censorship here. First of all, that corporations can muzzle their employers, employees in this way, can prohibit their free speech for the rest of their lives. You can go to work for a company, discover that they're dumping toxic waste, and you can't talk about it maybe forever. That seems to me a real um, problem with one's own free speech. And second, of course, there's the power of huge industries like the tobacco industry with limitless money for attorneys for frivolous lawsuits to silence the press with the mere threat of a lawsuit. We can't have a free press that doesn't dare take on these industries. Well, there's also tremendous censorship on behalf of the alcohol industry, although I don't have time to really go into that here. But because of that, because of the censorship on behalf of alcohol and tobacco, this not only affects the kind of health information we receive or don't receive, it affects our public policy. The most obvious example of this has been our war on drugs. Now, the war on drugs has routinely eliminated our two major killers, alcohol and nicotine, routinely eliminated them. You would think from the coverage of the war on drugs that our major drug problem was cocaine, crack, a serious problem. There's no question about this. But last year, all illegal drugs combined, crack, cocaine, heroin, PCP, all of them, killed perhaps a maximum of 20,000 people. I don't wish to minimize any death. They're all serious. But alcohol kills well over 100,000 people every year. Cigarettes kill over 400,000. In fact, one statistic that everyone should know, but perhaps many don't, is that cigarettes kill more Americans each year than alcohol, cocaine, heroin, car crashes, fires, homicide, suicide, and AIDS combined combined. Single largest preventable cause of death in the country, and we don't include them in our war on drugs. This is a form of censorship and one that affects us tremendously. Well, finally, another major form of advertising influence is advertiser-friendly stories, infomercials, advertorials. It's getting harder all the time to tell the difference between editorial content and advertising. The idea often is to confuse the audience, to make us believe that these ads are impartial reports. One public interest group has petitioned the FCC to require stations to run a constant on-air symbol to let viewers know they're watching an ad. That seems logical. However, one of the worst consequences of all of this is the shutting out of dissent. 
The total time devoted to commercials on network television during prime time is as high as about 15 minutes an hour. 15 minutes. But about two seconds of that is spent on public service announcements. It's increasingly difficult to get other points of view. Advocacy groups whose interests can and do clash with corporate sponsors often find it difficult or impossible to get their messages to the public. For example, the California Department of Health Services tries to place an ad in Essence magazine, an ad that features three photos of three famous black singers who died from tobacco-related diseases. And the copy says, cigarettes made them history. Essence refuses to run the ad, doesn't want to offend their cigarette advertisers. Earlier, their senior editor for Health had said, alienating a tobacco company means more than just kissing off cigarettes. It may mean alienating a conglomerate. What does this mean? It means that tobacco companies now own other companies. Philip Morris owns Kraft. R.J. Reynolds owns Nabisco. They can pull their food ads. It doesn't, it's not just a question of cigarette ads anymore. Grammy award-winning singer and vegetarian K.D. Lang appeared in a 30-second spot critical of eating meat. A radio station in Nebraska and several others announced that they would no longer play her songs. Sometimes advocacy groups come under editorial fire, often as part of an effort to further appease advertisers. That's another thing they can do. That happens sometimes. Um, Gannett Outdoor Advertising refused to run a paid ad of a winner of an art contest for school children that showed the dangers of smoking. Refused to put it on a billboard. According to Gannett, the message that smoking kills was misleading and didn't show the other side. Now, I'm a little confused. What is the other side of smoking kills? I don't quite get this. Perhaps, finally, the mo tr most troubling result of all of this is that the press, because there's such corporate emphasis, the press feels so free to attack the government and so afraid to attack the, their corporate sponsors. Bill Lazarus, a prize-winning reporter for the Hammond Times in Indiana, says, when you write about government, the attitude of editors tends to be no holds barred. When you write about business, the attitude tends to be one of caution. And for businesses who happen to be advertisers, the caution turns frequently to timidity. So what this means is that in terms of our public discourse, the role of corporations in the major problems of our time is erased. For example, there's endless discussion about welfare mothers, endless discussion about it, but hardly any about corporate welfare. Not nearly enough about the bailout of the savings and loan industry, for example, which is going to cost us far, far more than all the welfare mothers put together, for sure. Uh, there's crime, according to the media, is crime in the street. Muggers, maniacs, that's crime. It's never corporate crime. Although far more people will die because of inadequate health insurance or toxic waste than from serial killers. Each year, 60,000 workers die from workplace injuries and diseases. 60,000 of them. And yet Congress is in the process right now of destroying federal health and safety protections. Do we hear about that? I haven't. But we hear about almost all of the 25,000 homicides that we have. So the crime is, the emphasis is always on individuals, never on these uh, huge corporations. There's countless stories about crack, about cocaine. But I've never seen, there may be one, but I've never seen a story pointing out that the drug most related to violent crime in America is alcohol. By far, no question. Politicians are examined with a microscope, but the men who control the corporations are often invisible. I think we should expose the CEOs of these huge global corporations as thoroughly as we do our politicians. They often have far more influence on our lives. It's also more difficult because of this to get the stories that would give us perspective, that would give us background. There's lots of stories about sick individuals, but so little about environmentally caused disease, for example. There's been a dramatic increase of childhood cancers, of increasing cancer in general, and probably, who knows, this is linked with the food we eat, with pesticides, with our environment, of course. These are, but it's, these are all stories that would threaten big business. We live in a culture that suppresses information vital to our very existence. And I think perhaps the biggest untold story today is the takeover of Congress by these global corporations. Big business's political allies are pushing a sweeping deregulatory agenda unraveling some of the few public controls we have left as watchdogs over corporate abuses. 
This growing corporate power threatens the very core of our democracy, and it poses a growing threat to human health and the environment. Deregulation, it, sounds, it seems so boring. What does it mean? What effect does it have? Well, let me quote Ralph Nader, who was commenting on the President's Task Force on Regulatory Relief, which was created in, by Ronald Reagan and chaired by George Bush. And Nader said, the record is brutal indeed. At least 40,000 deaths and one million injuries can be traced to the administration's delay in requiring airbags and automatic safety belts in cars. Hundreds of thousands of infants were fed nutritionally deficient formula while Bush and the Office of Management and Budget delayed rules requiring testing of infant formula, and thousands of babies and young children suffered the serious and often fatal Ray syndrome disease while the administration stonewalled rules to place warning labels on aspirin products linked to Ray syndrome in children. In this information age, people are dying from lack of information. Well, what can we do about all of this? We'll talk about this in the time that's left for discussion. Basically, we need to learn more about it. We need to publicize the pro problem. We need to have a watchdog group in the journalistic community. We need to um, create whistleblower laws to protect journalists who publicly disclose advertising censorship. We need to clearly identify advertising influence. There's a great deal that we can do. Some people claim that this censorship is inevitable as long as the media are subsidized by advertisers, that we must sacrifice our system of free expression in order to save our economic system, that the media could not survive without censorship on behalf of advertisers. But such censorship represents the antithesis of the Madisonian ideal of free expression. It threatens our First Amendment rights. This trend can be reversed only if we as citizens, thinking of ourselves as citizens rather than as consumers, stand together to challenge it. We must stand up and speak out against those who would silence or limit speech. As William Faulkner said, never be afraid to raise your voice for honesty and truth and compassion against lying and injustice and greed. If people all over the world in thousands of rooms like this one would do this, it would change the earth. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Kilborn. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church in Minneapolis. Today's guest speaker is Dr. Jean Kilborn, who has just spoken on the topic, How Free Is Our Press? The Truth About Censorship. While the ushers collect the questions here in the sanctuary, those of you listening on the radio may call in a question for Dr. Kilborn by dialing area code 612 3-3-2-3-4-2-1. Dr. Kilborn, if you will please return to the podium, we will begin with a period of questions. You have said that the issue today is who in our culture are the real authorities. And you have said elsewhere that the real authorities, and you underscore this today, that the real authorities in our culture and society are Philip Morris and Anheuser-Busch. Can you say a word here about what you mean by authority and who, if any, are the legitimate authorities who have been replaced? What I mean by authority, and when I said that about uh, Philip Morris and Anheuser-Busch, are, the, are the, those people who really have tremendous influence on us and on our children. So I've made that comment in, in response to people talking about uh, what we could do as citizens, as parents, to try and help our children with alcohol and tobacco abuse. And I said it's awfully difficult when we're up against authorities, you know, the, uh, these huge uh, global corporate authorities. In terms of who the real authorities should be, of course, in my ideal world, it would be people with moral courage, you know, uh, not, uh, that wouldn't be the people who necessarily had the most money. It would be the people who had the, who had moral courage. Thank you. One of the members of the audience asks, is there any other large industrialized country that is freer of advertising censorship than the U.S.? That's a good question. I, I, don't, I don't know. Uh, it seems to me that there are certainly countries that take this issue more seriously. Wherever there's this kind of um, advertising, of course there's this kind of 
pressure. And of course, all of this is becoming more and more global. You know, we're, as we export our TV programs and our, all of that, it's all becoming more global anyway. But I know there are countries that take the issue more seriously. Uh, there are certainly countries that, there are countries that have banned uh, alcohol and tobacco advertising, for example, because they feel that they can't get health information out to their citizens in the, in, with this, all this advertising around them. So I'd say, I'm not sure, but I know there are countries that take it more seriously. Here's a quick question, I think. Mm -hmm. What magazines do not accept cigarette ads? Uh, surely there are some. Is there one? Yes, there, there are some. There are some. Um, but even those, uh, Reader's Digest doesn't accept cigarette ads. Good Housekeeping, I think, does not accept uh, cigarette ads. Mother Jones doesn't accept any ads. Well, that's not true. But uh, they, they, they do accept them, but they don't get any because they do such uh, journalistic exp you know, exposés. Uh, a very, very slim magazine, a good one, but a very slim one. Uh, the trouble is that even the magazines that do not accept these cigarette ads are still like liable to this kind of pressure, as I explained, because these, huge, these are huge conglomerates we're talking about. So Good Housekeeping doesn't run cigarette ads, but Philip Morris can say to them, publish that article on cigarette smoking, and we're going to pull our Kraft macaroni and cheese ads. And they will. So that's, they're all subjected to this. One person says, thank you for daring to speak your truth, and has this question. Have you seen evidence of the effect of corporate sponsorships on public television and radio? This is, I knew someone would ask me that question since I'm on public radio right now. Uh, there is some. It's certainly, there's less. There's no question about that. Public radio is, and public television is extraordinarily important. We need to support it. It's one of the few places where we sometimes can get alternative views. That does not mean that they're totally exempt from this. There is, of course, the corporations, you know, do contribute. And, of course, I'm not saying not all corporations are bad by a long shot, and I'm not saying that or anything along those lines. I'm talking about these huge conglomerates that have enormous power over us. But certainly there have been some examples of programs. You know, the problem with public television and radio more than anything else is they sometimes have difficulty finding sponsors for controversial programs. And that's a real problem, because we desperately need to have access to these controversial programs, and sponsors are increasingly afraid to be connected with any of these issues. Can you speak about the influence of insurance and HMO industries mm -hmm. on our information about public policy and health care? Oh, for hours, I could. For hours. Uh, it's, it's, it's certainly what's happening in our country in terms of health care, health insurance, and all of that is the national disgrace and a national tragedy and an enormous amount of the, the, the defeat of any kind of sensible health care uh, change was, uh, it had a lot to do with the power, the enormous power of the insurance industry. One person asked, would you please address the issue of those who use your work to justify outright censorship of advertising that may be provocative? Um, I don't know of anyone who's suggesting outright censorship of advertising. I mean, what comes to mind as soon as I hear that is the Calvin Klein commercials recently, the ones that where there was a lot of protest against them, as I feel there should have been. They really were uh, extremely reminiscent of child pornography and, and very disturbing commercials. But it seems to me that the system worked then the way that it should, which is that people from a wide variety of political points of view protested, and Calvin Klein withdrew the commercials. And that, so no one was suggesting they be censored. Now, unfortunately, he also got an enormous amount of publicity, of course, which helped him. So in the long run, it didn't hurt him in the least. But I think it was nonetheless helpful, because it, it, in, the more I'm, I'm very much, you know, I'm a real believer in free speech, and I think what we need is more discussion, more debate, more dialogue, more controversy, not less. And so the fact that this was discussed so much, I think, was a good thing. Look at these. This, this is this, incredible. What an audience. I mean, this is a it, question from everybody. This may be, this may be a good follow-up to that mm -hmm. one. Mm -hmm. Can you address the censorship efforts of groups like the Christian Coalition, Traditional Family Coalition, and others who censor images and information not consistent with their views of traditional families? Oh, well, you know, again, I... Um, I think the way and I, to resist this kind of thing, and, and I think it should be resisted, is, is not through less speech, but through more, so that people who are opposed to this, to this definition of traditional families 
should speak out about what our vision is. You know, the, uh, we can do a lot with that. I know that uh, there's a little slogan even I've seen on bumper stickers, hate, hate is not a family value. You know, that kind of thing can make a difference. So that the thing to do is to say, is to challenge them exactly what is it that you're proposing here and have more discussion, more debate, more, more information about it. Please comment on Secretary O'Leary's attempt to identify friendly reporters. Oh. What more is there to say? <laughs> I think this, of course, is one of the major problems that, that we, the last thing we want are friendly reporters. You know, we want reporters who are inquisitive, who are courageous, who are, you know, hard-hitting, who are um, questioning all of those kinds of things. Friendly reporters are almost always reporters who've been bought. Mm -hmm. <laughs> when you say that smoking is not included in the war on drugs, are you suggesting that cigarettes should be outlawed? No, I'm not suggesting at all that cigarettes should be outlawed. When you have a quarter of your population addicted to something, you can't outlaw it. However, there's a great deal, I think we should be putting ourselves solidly behind President Clinton's attempts to prevent children from starting to smoke. This is what the government is trying to do now, and the tobacco industry, of course, has a lot of money, and you know, government bureaucrats are trying to tell us what to do. Well, here's what we're trying really to do, and that is to stop children from starting. 90% of all smokers start before they're 19, 60% start before high school. If you don't start smoking when you're very, very young, you're not going to start. And most smokers, 9 out of 10, wish they'd never started, wish they could quit. It, it seems to me, can't we as a nation, who couldn't support the idea that we should stop children from starting to smoke? Only tobacco executives can be opposed to that. Now, unfortunately, they have a lot of money and they have a lot of uh, influence on politicians. But that's, that's what I'm suggesting. I, have, I could talk for an hour on the whole war on drugs, which is not, has really been a war on drug addicts, and the whole thing is misguided, and we should be you know, doing, having more treatment and prevention and all of that. But since there are thousands of yellow slips piling up here, I'll, I'll, but that, just to say that, that we should certainly be supporting these efforts to prevent children from starting to smoke. When you say that men who control these corporations should be exposed like government officials, are you implying that women are not playing a part in advertising censorship? <laughs> women are certainly playing a part in advertising censorship, but I don't think there's a single female CEO of any of these corporations I'm talking about. Uh, and that uh, I'm talking again about these a very, relatively small number of corporations. As I said, there are about 20 now that own the mass media. And uh, there's and and the others, you know, the heads of, C, of Philip Morris and all these others, huge uh, conglomerates. And so I didn't mean to imply that. Women certainly get involved in this. Women participate in this. Uh, you know, we, we all do. I mean, many people do. So I'm not suggesting that. But rather that so many of these people who have such tremendous influence over our lives, we know so little about. We know everything about the peccadillos of all, you know, the, and not that we shouldn't. I mean, well, in some ways we shouldn't know everything about the, our politicians either. Sometimes I think we know a bit too much. But, but certainly we should have, you know, access to information. We don't have this kind of access to information about people like, you know, Rupert Murdoch and, uh, you know, people who have tremendous influence on our lives. What about the idea of public airwaves? Isn't this what the FCC is supposed to regulate, or are they dominated by commercial interests also? They're dominated by politicians who are dominated by commercial interests. That's what's happening, and that's really the very organizations that are supposed to protect us. You know, the FCC, the FTC, all of them are, in fa are, are struggling mightily to, to, be on, to stay on our side, I think, in, in the face of tremendous pressure in Congress from on behalf of these huge corporations. The airwaves should belong to the public. They should, and they don't. And we're in, we certainly, many of us thought that, or some people thought they would with cable television. What a wonderful idea. Cable television is becoming increasingly just a way for advertisers to more narrowly target their uh, markets. That's all. The same thing is happening with the Internet. You know, this is what's going to happen. It's going to be a huge, it's not going to be a, an information superhighway. It's going to be a shopping mall. And that is already what it's turning into. So but that, that we can prevent this if we demand as citizens that we control the airwaves, as we should. There's a wonderful organization started by Dr. George Gerbner, one of my heroes, called the Cultural Environment Movement. 
uh, which is trying to do just this, to take back the airwaves. And that's listed also on this resource list. Again, if you want a copy of my resource list, you can call the church and get my address, and I'll be happy to send you one. We have time for one last question, Dr. Kilborn. The town hall forum is about key issues. It's also about conscience and what makes people tick. Would you tell us a little bit about what influences in your, in your own life bring you to be the person that you are and to see the world the way you do? One minute to tell you what makes me tick. <laughs> this is going to be interesting. Uh, many things. I, uh, I, the most important event in my life, I think, was the fact that my mother died when I was nine. Uh, so, and I grew. I have three brothers, so I grew up in a in a very male environment, and uh, was much more independent than uh, than I would have wanted to be, to tell you the truth. But I was very independent, so I, in some ways, escaped some of the socialization, perhaps that went on, uh, not all of it by a long shot. And I'd certainly rather have had my mother with me. To, but uh, that was a big influence. Going to wealthy college was a big influence. Being in an all-women's environment where women were in positions of power and in leadership and being treated as first class. It's very hard once you're treated as first class to go back to being second class. Uh, living in Europe, working for uh, the media in different ways. I did some modeling when I was young and that I hated it, but I didn't even have a language to describe how, why I hated it. But it made me very conscious about image and the power of the image. I became a teacher. All of these things led me to begin to look at these images and, to, and the power that they have in our lives and to then try and do the best I could to resist them. I always like to say to audiences that uh, in the beginning I had a tremendous fear of public speaking. Most people do. Americans say in survey after survey that they fear public speaking more than they fear death, which I find hilarious, you know. But, I mean, speaker, I'll kill you. Uh, but it, it, you, it can be overcome, and it's very important for all of us to find our voice, for, for women especially, but for all of us to find our voice and to speak out, because that, finally, in Faulkner's words, is what will change the earth. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Kilborn, for your voice and for not being intimidated by publics like us, for uh, bringing us your word of clarity. I wish we had had time here to talk about the images and advertising uh, having to do with women and thinness and the relationship between that and anorexia nervosa and other eating disorders. Uh, we will look to further words from you. Uh, in the press uh, as they are reported and we will uh, read what you have to say and we will be different after today in our search to change the world. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.